It is at this time of year, as the days grow short and the nights grow long and the darkness seems to come in close, that our readings start to turn more to ultimate things, life, death, God's dream for us, and the confrontation between Jesus and the powers of darkness. We have this beautiful passage from the book of Job, which is not a book of beautiful passages, believe me. Job is probably one of our most ancient texts in scripture. And Job, if you remember the story, loses everything, even his health, and he is sitting in the dust, lamenting his fate, and railing in some ways at God for being so unfair. And then Job's friends come along, and Job has friends that fall under that broad rubric with friends like this, who needs enemies? Because Job's friends are like most of us. They think Job must have deserved something had done something, rather, to deserve his fate. And they basically say to him, in their several ways, just curse God and die. Be, be done with it. Job's wife says something along the same line. She's no help either. But Job, after one of his debates with his friends, offers this beautiful line that we use in our memorial service, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him face to face. Or, as some translators would have it, I know my Vindicator lives, that Job will be vindicated, his righteousness will be shown, and that despite all that has happened to him, Job hangs on to this faith. Because that is the true lesson of Job. Once you get past the surface lesson of why bad things happen to good people, you get to the kernel, and that is that faith does not depend, true faith does not depend on what happens to us. As many of you know, Porter Leach, our beloved eldest member, passed away this last week. He used to sit right there. He was 98 years old. Porter would come in early to listen to the choir that he loved. Porter was an amazing man, and there are many stories to tell about him, but it being Veterans Day weekend, I want to share just one with you. The day after Pearl Harbor, the United States entered World War II, and Porter went down and enlisted. Now, Porter would be the first to say he was very privileged and that he was not sent to the front. Rather, he stayed stateside and trained pilots for endurance flight. And then later, he was called upon to escort soldiers returning mainly from the Pacific Theater from the front lines. Porter would tell his family this story often over the years. 
that he would sit on the train with these guys coming back and they were yellow, yellow with the anti-malarial medication they had been taking while in the Pacific Theater and they were exhausted. And Porter said, my commanding officers told me that if any of those men slipped away, to let them go. Let them go. But he said, you know what? Not one of them tried to get off the train before it arrived at its destination, the debriefing. Porter was a man of incredible integrity, and he inspired that integrity in others. And he reminded me this week of that passage from Job because last Sunday as I visited him for the last time, his daughters told me about how he was preparing to die. Now, the spiritual author and Franciscan and Roman priest Richard Rohr talks, laments even, that one of the things that we did in our culture in the last century that was deeply destructive to our spirituality was that we medicalized death and we medicalized birth. In other words, he said, we shifted people who were dying off to the hospital or to nursing care rather than keeping them at home as we had done for many, many, many centuries, even before history was recorded. And he said, what every human being must learn to experience, he said, is to be with someone who is dying and to be with someone who is born. And he said, it's interesting, the spirituality of both is about the same. It is an extraordinary transition. And to witness that is to be changed forever. For those who have stayed with people like Porter who are dying, you may know that it is not a smooth process. It is long and it is hard work. And Porter struggled with it in some ways. But he said to one of his daughters as he was starting to slip out of consciousness, what is this process again, darling? He asked her. His daughter was a nurse and had been around people who were dying before. And she said straight back at him, Dad, she said, Dad, this process is the process of dying. He said, I know. And then he said, God is in charge. God is in charge. Faith a little bit like that of Job. Yes? In that funny place where if you hang around people who are dying for very long, you realize that that line between life and death is not so neat as you thought it was. And that line between the mortal and the eternal is not so clear either. My response was, you just hold that door open for us, big guy. What a blessing. Jesus talks about ultimate things in today's Gospel reading. In this rather peculiar passage, 
where an obscure sect that we don't understand very well, we know very little about them, called the Sadducees, come. Now this occurs in Luke's great narrative after Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly for the last time. And he has probably sealed his fate by going to the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers and confronting the merchants and driving the animals out of the temple. He has threatened the very economic and religious foundations of his home country and has probably alerted the Romans to his danger. After that, Luke does a series of conversations or debates, if you will, between Jesus and various sects of the religious authorities. And the Sadducees, who are a sect of priests who focus on the Torah, the first five books of our scripture, and who are deeply enamored of the text and very conservative, come to him. And they posit to him what must sound to us like a little bit of a ludicrous hypothetical about this woman who marries seven brothers and then dies. Ever heard of it, such a thing before? But the subtext for them is they're trying to test Jesus. They're pulling up an obscure piece of the law about what is known as Leverite marriage, which was designed to protect a widow who was childless from being completely bereft and also ensure that a family might have a male heir and continue its lineage. And of course the Sadducees are also poking fun at the Pharisees, another sect, and at Jesus' own teaching, trying to show that notions of life after death are ludicrous. And they're also baiting Jesus. Maybe, they think, he'll reject the Mosaic law, and then we'll have him nailed. Jesus, of course, does not fall into their trap. But more significantly than that is what he implies in his response to them. It is not just the teachings of their heritage that they are distorting, he says, but they are, in fact, co-opting God into something that he has come to confront and transform, even with his own death. One of the great theologians of our time, James Allison, rooted in the philosophical and sociological and anthropological work of René Girard, talks about how Jesus comes to confront the system of violence that is at the foundation of every cultural community. Think about that for a minute. Every culture, Girard claimed, has at its root a system of violence and if you think about our history, if you think about how we were founded, if you think about who we are and how we protect what we hold most dear, you realize that at some level, Girard is probably right. Violence surrounds us, is at our foundation, and undergirds us. And that was as true in Jesus' day as it is for us now. 
Jesus saw that the religious officials in Jerusalem were in cahoots with the Roman government and they would cause people who were living near subsistence livings to come in and give away their livelihoods so that they could be right with God and that money would not only fund the religious elites in Jerusalem but would pay the tribute that flowed to Rome so that the peace would be kept. At its base it was a system of violence and it brought great suffering. Suffering that Jesus often confronted in his ministry. And now he is in Jerusalem confronting the belly of the beast. And he points out to the Sadducees in a subtle way in today's gospel, you're part of the problem, guys. You are part of the problem. Most of all, because you have co-opted God into this system of violence. And of course then you cannot imagine resurrection. How could you? Systems of violence depend on death and the threat of death to sustain them. But what if? What if Jesus says our God is the God of the living? not of the dead. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Moses would say, not in the past tense, but in the present tense. What if, to God, death is nothing at all? What does that do, then, to a culture built around a system of violence? Jesus will confront that with his own body. And we commemorate that fact every time we gather on a Sunday morning and celebrate the Eucharist. What happens then? And in a way, Jesus is confronting us through this story as well. Because we all are connected with a culture of violence in some way, shape, or fashion. What if we are being invited to a world that is very different than that? What if we are being invited into a world where death is nothing at all? Where our God is God of the living? Where we are free, like the angels, to live forever? How does that change us? How does that change who we are and how we relate? How does that make us Christian in a world that seems often enamored of darkness? Jesus calls us not to be children of darkness. What does it mean to be children of the light? This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people 
through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.